Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Francois Bertrand. Hello. We also have Ben Wilson. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Vila. Uh, do I dare try and say your last name? Tulos? That's right. Sounds perfect. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Now, we're going to be talking a bit about data science infrastructure. And yeah, I mean, we I think we got access to your book and uh, kind of got to dive into it a little bit, which is really fascinating. But uh, you're probably the most qualified person to give us an introduction. So when we're talking about data science infrastructure, what generally are we talking about? Yeah, well, that's a, definitely a good question. And actually, that, that's part of the motivation why I wanted to write the book in the first place, because many people, uh, many companies these days are like exactly like asking the same question and wondering that, okay, so I, my, my general feeling is that, that there are many companies who are like trying to figure out how to use machine learning and how to use data science to make their businesses more effective. And, and this was definitely the, um, the situation at Netflix, where I used to work leading the machine learning platform team like for the past three years or so. And uh, Netflix is, of course, like quite an interesting company. And uh, and many people know that they have invested a lot in, in recommendations. So all the TV shows and movies you see, like when you go to Netflix.com. But not many people know that there are actually many, many other machine learning applications that uh, Netflix wants to use and, and wants to develop kind of a behind the scenes. And uh, now uh, Netflix was asking exactly the same question about four years ago. That, okay, so uh, if we want to have all these applications of natural language processing, computer vision, classical statistics, what kind of a data science infrastructure do we actually need? And what does it even mean exactly? And, and like the, the basic idea there is that, okay, so there are ideas like where we want to apply machine learning and data science. On the other hand, like we have people who are supposed to work these things. And there's kind of the feeling that, if we give these people nothing, if we have the domain experts, data scientists, and, and maybe they have to just like write everything from scratch, well, obviously that's that's not going to be optimal. I mean, they're going to pay too much, spend too much time on, on, on like engineering, engineering like it's just like a building, building like a very very basic supporting infrastructure for doing like things that like every single machine learning and data science project needs to do. And uh, and that's why when I started at Netflix and when my team started thinking that, okay, how can we actually help these people? How can we make them productive? We started thinking that what are the most fundamental components that every data science machine learning projects needs? And it starts from the very basics that, well, I mean, everybody needs data. I guess that's given. Everybody needs to do some compute and everybody needs to, at the end of the day, orchestrate these, these complex applications, complex workflows in some manner. And that's that's my my view. And I know that like there are different people with different views, that that's my view of data science infrastructure, that starting like from the bottom up, like what are the, the most fun, fundamental and foundational things that we have to provide for data scientists to make them productive? And uh, then like how we think about using existing pieces of infrastructure. I don't think that like ML is that special that like you would have to reinvent everything from scratch, but I mean, put them together in a, in a very 
like easily usable like productivity boosting package. So, and that's that's really like what the book is about, and like what I was doing with my team at Netflix as well. I mean, I'm curious to hear a little bit about where you went from defining those core competencies that are common to pretty much every ML application or, or project that you do. And once you define those, what was the process like for our viewers that are out there, our, our listeners, who are maybe thinking about doing this? Like, hey, we want to build a framework at our company that is specialized to our business. What was that process like leading up to the time between defining those base characteristics all the way to you open sourcing Metaflow for the first time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. Well, I mean, like, I mean, like to answer very directly that like if there are people out there, like in the listeners who are interested, I mean, definitely like take a look at the book. I mean, kind of the, the idea with the book is to kind of walk through that like process like very in a very bottom-up manner. So you can do it at home as well. Now, like what we did at Netflix is that um, we knew, and then this is actually like maybe partly like due to the Netflix culture as well, they have this concept of of giving a lot of autonomy to, to, to all employees. So we couldn't just go and, and, and say that, okay, we are going to build this thing and like everybody's forced to use this. I mean, there's even no CTO at the company who could say that like everybody is, is kind of a, that there's the mandate that everybody must do this things this way. So we knew that like whatever we are going to build, it has to be something that it appeals to these practicing data scientists, machine learning engineers, so that they would actually like choose to use these things voluntarily. And hence we knew that like we have to address the pain points that they that they have and, and and things that they don't want to do. And then on the other hand, like allow them to do things and allow them to have a lot of freedom with the things that like they they actually feel that they want to decide by themselves. So we actually like like had the pleasure of, of working with many people and like we we asked a lot of questions. And of course, given that I had been doing this already before at other companies, so it gave me some perspective. So we didn't only like do the first things everybody was asking for, but quite soon, like we started realizing that again, I mean, there are these very, very like basic questions that, okay, so people were asking that, let's say I'm, I'm prototyping something in, in my notebook and, and then let's say I have a big pandas data frame and then the pandas data frame runs out of memory. So I, I need a bigger instance. I need, I need like access to more resources and, and how do, how do I make that happen? And then the first step, step is that, okay, how do we help people scaling out, scaling up? These, these prototypes, even without going to production. And then that's the question of the compute layer and like, how can we actually farm out these, these machine learning uh, tasks or functions to the cloud? So very basic question. Another one like that people ask often is that how do I access data? How do I, I mean, obviously Netflix is a big data warehouse. Many other companies have data warehouses, databases. So very basic questions that how do I access data from these systems? And then how am I supposed to manipulate the data in my pipelines? So another like a very basic question that we wanted to answer. And then lastly, there's, Always the question, a big one, that how do I deploy these models? Let's say I managed to, to deploy something. I, I managed to develop something. I managed to that scale. How do I then like deploy it to production? And that's, a, of course, like really an interesting one. And uh, and also we realized that the, what is meant by production is really a spectrum. There are many different kinds of production. And then like, how can we help people who are not necessarily distributed systems engineers, who are not necessarily SREs and, and like people who kind of build highly available systems as a, as a day job to kind of actually build workflows that like we can dare to use in production, even for business critical applications. So I guess a long story short, it, it was definitely an iterative process. Like, and like important thing for us is that like we didn't overfit. We didn't look only at the single type of use cases, not only at the deep learning use cases, not only at the like a classical statistics use cases, but looking at the wide spectrum of different things and like looking for commonalities and then package them then thoughtfully in a, in a single frameworks. Awesome. I mean, I would take that as a recommendation for people just doing ML project work is to follow that same process. 
a lot of people in the ML space, like data scientists who are looking at how ML engineers, infrastructure engineers for ML do things. They're like, oh, they're software developers. It's like, no, maybe you should follow how they, they build projects because it makes for more successful ML as well, following how you built that and got it to meet all of the needs. And I was really in, intrigued by what you said about the spectrum of production releases. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I talk to customers a lot about. A lot of people are like, oh, I need to get it to serving. I need to get it to production. So what that means to me is creating a REST API for something that only requires a batch inference. Mm-hmm. Um, or somebody saying, well, we have to deploy on KS and we need this massive scalability. It's like, well, you have four people hitting the API a day. Yeah. So no, you don't need that. So what sorts of things have you learned over your years of doing this about that spectrum? that maybe the listeners can say, oh, this is what I can learn from this book. Yeah, well, I, I would have to say the rule of thumb is that I um, I, I felt oftentimes that I'm, I'm a totally overpaid person, like just saying that you can do it simpler, that like exactly to a point about, about <laughs> not not everybody needing needing kind of the, the, the massive scale and not everybody needing, let's say, I mean, like not even all applications need the same level of uh, SLA and high availability. And like, then you can like choose your approach accordingly. And as we know, in engineering, everything comes with the trade-off. And of course, if it was so that like, well, I mean, we can do everything at, at Google scale or whatever, and it doesn't cost anything. Sure. I mean, why not? But I mean, oftentimes then the cost comes on the, let's say on the iteration side. Anyways, long story short, uh, like my my experience is that, oh, look, uh, machine learning comes in all shapes and sizes. Um, there isn't like one template that this is what all machine learning, this is what all data science looks like. I mean, it's the same thing as, as with software engineering. I mean, if you if you said that, okay, this is the way how software engineering artifacts, this is how software needs to be deployed to production. I mean, that's meaningless. I mean, what does it mean? It's, a, it's one thing to build embedded software. It's another thing to build like a distributed database. It's a yet another thing to build like web applications. It's a yet another thing to build front-end applications. So, and, and everybody understands that uh, when you deploy software, well, I mean, it, it really depends on the, on the use case. And I, I don't think that's very controversial. Exactly in the same way, of course, some ML applications need to be deployed as a REST API. Some ML applications get deployed uh, at the edge on like, let's say even on mobile devices. Other ML applications are, are batch processes that run once a night. And uh, another ML applications, actually it's just like a write to a, like Excel spreadsheet. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it really, it's, it's a wide variety and like, Exactly to your point that that I mean definitely I mean it's not not always a REST API. Uh, interestingly enough, any time like you have to do a massive massive number of, of batch predictions, let's say I mean it's probably like way more efficient of not having a REST API and just like a crunch through the data as fast as you can by other means. So, and I, I think it is it is actually like actively counterproductive to think that like there is a one linear way of of deploying everything and there's a one deployment target. Now, the thing is, of course, that this is this is company dependent. And if all your company does is that like, oh, there's a one microservice you need to deploy, let's say there's a recommendation systems and it runs as a microservice. Well, I mean, maybe that is the one deployment target. But I, I think at least you should keep an open mind that next next time your marketing department comes and says that okay, we need to we need to optimize our marketing budgets. Well, I mean, it might not be microservice that time. I mean, maybe this maybe it is something different. So, and, and then you can choose accordingly. And I, I think that like whatever approach, whatever framework you are using, I mean, it, it supports like all these different modalities. I mean, I so, have a question on, on Metaflow, which which the book is about, because it, it does feel like the, the holy grail of, of that kind of abstraction layer over everything from data warehousing to feature engineering and model development. It's trying to, to accomplish 
accomplish. So you can plug in kind of what whatever your your use case is at every layer for warehousing or model uh, versioning and all of that. And, and it really feels like, you know, potentially extremely powerful. There's so much to go over, but <laughs> there has to be some places that were more challenging than others to to kind of try to abstract away. Like you said, every possible case for edge or mm-hmm. cloud deployment and parallel processing. And I mean, how... Uh, what do you feel were were the most successful or easiest places to where Metaflow really succeeds at where there's still challenges when you're approaching something that potentially could be, you know, the Uber solution where you, everything's abstracted away and you have to one kind of workflow for every project because you've plugged in everything you needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, like first, just to clarify, I mean, the idea is not so that Metaflow would necessarily solve all these problems for you. I mean, what Metaflow does is that it solves some some things that are like very common to all projects. Again, I mean compute data orchestration versioning, so forth. Now the the idea is that you definitely have to do some like work then to integrate to to your like specific systems at at your company. So again, I mean like drawing the parallel to software engineering. I mean if there was a software engineering framework that said that well, I mean we are going to solve every every single problem and like do do everything for you. I mean of course nobody would believe and that wouldn't make any sense. But I do think what makes sense is that like you can have a, you can have a solid foundation, you can have a good starting point, and then on top of that, you can definitely like build by yourself uh, your like custom solutions. So so actually like just to give you an example, even even at Netflix, what happened is that uh, we we provided Metaflow as a common base layer, and and then different teams, different parts of the organization, focusing on different problem domains, they built their own like a thin layer of abstraction on top of Metaflow to address their own specific needs. And, and like a good example, I'm actually like going back to your question that like what, where we were successful and like maybe where like we were less. So I think overall, I mean, like with these basic questions, especially with compute, I think that like that's that's actually really a pleasant experience today. Orchestration, like I think we are doing a decent job. Data, data is always a hard problem. And actually, like, especially in the context of machine learning, it's an interesting thing that like over the years, like we thought a lot about what we should do with feature engineering and feature stores. And and you know it's it's such such a gnarly amorphous problem that I I know that there are many companies uh, many frameworks out there that like promise that they they provide an ultimate solution for let's say feature engineering and feature stores and and we kind of never could quite crack that code in a, in a, in a general manner I mean of course like we could have ideas how to solve it for specific use cases but in general like what what like you get today if you use metaflow is that well i mean again like we help you with the with the basic foundational layer and then like you can surely um, use different kind of uh, let's say feature engineering feature store approaches on top of metaflow but as of today for instance metaflow doesn't come with any any feature store built in and i mean like i mean if you ask me i couldn't say like how we would go about like building or integrating one like really built in to, to, to Metaflow, I mean, just because of the complexity of the real world and, and the entropy and like the number of different approaches that people want to take. Yeah, can confirm from my own company, it is not trivial to implement one. We have one that's in public preview right now, and it is rather complex and required an entire, I mean, creation of a new technology, Delta Lake, in order to, to support the feature store functionality integrating with yeah. MLflow. Yeah, it's, I think it resonates a lot also what you were saying there about we're leaving this open to use components that have already been built because we, that whole reinventing the wheel, I think that's appealing to a lot of, a lot of company cultures in engineering sometimes. We're like, well, you know, the NIH syndrome, it wasn't invented here. It's not good. Mm-hmm. Somebody else built it. We need something specific. What wisdom would you give to particularly data scientists and ML engineers 
to prevent them from going down that path and saying, hey, if there's pre-existing art, you might want to potentially just use that. Well, I mean, a simple answer is that like choose a company that doesn't reward you like and doesn't include in your promotion package that like how many new systems you reinvented. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean, it is a direct result of like many companies working exactly that way that if you're a senior engineer and like, let's say you want to get promoted to a staff engineer, you have to build some amazingly complex system. So you are directly incentivized to build a new database or build a new file system or build a new feature store. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that that is totally rational. And honestly, I mean, if if you are working at such a company, I, I think you have pretty much no choice except to implement the new feature store. So, I mean, I, I totally empathize with you. Now, luckily, Netflix like isn't such a company, and uh, I think like many other companies actually can be quite quite rational as well. And then, like my my point of view in general is that look, all this stuff is is so so very complex, and there are so many challenging problems that you want to really think carefully, like where you want to spend your resources. And I, I think that like engineers constantly, of course, like underestimate the complexity of, of everything in the real world. And then there's the temptation, especially let's say, I mean, the feature store is a classical example, but it kind of feels that, okay, wait a minute. So, I mean, I'm just looking at things like, uh, like whatever Amazon is providing, like maybe whatever Databricks, Tecton, I mean, all these companies are providing, look, I'm like, yeah, it's a key value store. I know key value stores and like, well, I mean, how hard can it be? I mean, we have a, some like a functions that like input something in a key value store and like that's pretty much it. And like, maybe you can check the checkbox after that and say that we have a feature store. But then like when you really start thinking about it and like trying to run something in production, like trying to support like a new features being defined, like both batch and real time. I mean, like the complexity, it's just like it spirals out of control. And and our our feeling was that since we knew that like with something like Metaflow, we wanted to address so many different pain points, we absolutely couldn't afford afford really like trying to reinvent any of these layers. I mean, like another good example is just like a basic data warehousing that I mean, oh my gosh, I mean, like it'd be absolutely a fool's around to like try to like reinvent any anything there much. Compute layer, the same thing that um, we are relying on things like AWS Batch and Kubernetes and so forth. Of course, you should use whatever is available. And, and even actually like surprisingly to many people, I mean, when it comes to this question of orchestration and how to execute these DAGs, Although Metaflow comes with the built-in scheduler, like then for production use, we we will actually export to whatever production scheduler you want to be using. And the reason for that is that even like although it like it's actually like a fun, almost like a like an interview question that okay, how do you walk through a DAG? I mean, simple enough. I mean it's a simple algorithm. But then like try to do the same so that you have a hundred thousand workflows running in parallel. I mean, each one of them may have 10,000 jobs. It needs to be highly available. It needs to be multi-master. It needs to be potentially multi-data center. It needs to be so that like it monitors everything. It needs to connect to the systems downstream, upstream. So, I mean, it is getting so complex that I'm actually still, like I said, that there aren't like better solutions out there today because it's such a hard problem that like there are a few companies who have kind of solved it internally, but I mean, when it comes to open source, I mean, like not, nothing is perfect yet. So. Correct. Just maintaining state management across oh complex gosh, production yeah. development uh, deployments. Yeah, it's a very challenging problem. And I think it's something that a lot of, I don't think a lot of people that are getting into ML, those companies that are sort of nascent and trying to figure stuff out and they're prototyping stuff, they don't really struggle with it because they don't know that they need to be struggling with it mm-hmm. yet about, hey, what does production deployment actually look like? But established companies that have, they've gone past that first three sort of human-in-the-loop manual deployment pain process. For all of those listeners out there, definitely give Metaflow a, a, a very good hard look 
and and definitely read this book because this is not compl- this is not like simple to manage yourself and when you're having to do this manually every single model that's out there every single project that you're pushing to production as that integer increases that counter becomes larger that's one more person's time that now has to be consumed with checking to make sure that everything's talking to one another yeah i have one question about the the book in particular what's your favorite thing about what you've written about the things that you're, you're teaching that you enjoyed writing the most and you think people are going to get the most out of yeah well it's a, it's a good question there are definitely many 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 different parts i would say that like one common theme a common thread throughout the book is is this question of, of usability and human centricity and this like a notion that well at the end of the day this is not about building an ai that solves like all the world's problems and like kind of a somehow automatically makes your business more profitable but i mean it is that okay it is the question how, how do we actually give tools to people and especially give tools to people who don't want to spend all their days like thinking about these low-level questions so that's a fascinating question always because it's so much harder in a way than like any any engineering problems now like very specifically there are like some topics i I mean, there's, there are actually like a couple of chapters about, about scalability and performance. And I, I really enjoyed, enjoyed like kind of a thinking because, the, you know, I mean, especially like in the context of engineering, there are oftentimes so many heated discussions even about like, oh, is it scalable enough? And is it performant enough? And especially, let's say, I mean, like in the context of data science and Python, there's this notion that, well, I mean, it, it's Python, we can't use it in production. It's not fast enough. And and then the, the kind of a thing that kind of like a bit like rubs me like occasionally is that, well, I mean, we kind of a, just like a name drop uh, these terms uh, like scalability and performance and like, and okay, so follow me first. I mean, scalability and performance are different concepts. They are not the same thing. You can have perfectly scalable systems that are not performant at all. Mm-hmm. You can have perfectly performant systems that are not scalable at all. So first, I mean, like it, it's useful to distinguish between the two dimensions. And then that like you can actually keep keep walking these dimensions. You can you can actually start something that like was which not scalable at all. I mean, it's totally valid. And actually, it's a I mean, this is something that oftentimes happens in the context of data science that you should start by doing the math and kind of like seeing that, okay, so what do I actually need? And then like thinking your scalability requirements with that. I mean, my favorite example is that, okay, look, uh, Netflix today has about, let's say, what's the latest number, like a 210 million members. And okay, so you might think that 210 million members, it's, it's quite a lot. So, so okay, it kind of like your first instinct, instinct is that, okay, it's a big number, we need scalability. Well, now the kind of an interesting question is that imagine having a data frame like that has 200 million rows. So it, it takes some amount of memory and like definitely the instinct might be that like you need to distribute it. Well, interestingly enough, like when you, when you do the math and actually like even if you go back like a 10 years time, and of course, I think 10 years ago, Netflix had maybe 70 million members and you had a, like a data frame with 70 million rows. At the time, at this time, let's say AWS, the largest instances that you could get 10 years ago, I think like had about like a 120 gigabytes of RAM available. But I mean, still, I mean, you could you could store like, well, let's see, I mean, you could store about like kind of a, like a, some some kilobytes of data. So let's say, I mean, we are talking about thousands of binary features for each member and you could keep the whole data frame or like a whole matrix in memory at that point in time. Now, the interesting thing that happened is that like as the number of Netflix uh, members grew from 70 million to 210 million, so grew the sizes of these instances. And actually I, I, I did the math and like for the past 10 years, 
every single year you have been able to keep this data frame in memory just by like piggybacking on like whatever is the largest instance available on AWS. Today, the largest instances have 768 gigabytes. I mean, just talking about the basic instances of RAM available. So, so you can actually still keep it in memory. And uh, this is, I mean, just to give you an example that like when you think about performance and scalability and, and there is this like a notion that, well, um, you, 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 you kind of absolutely like must, must do it differently. Well, I mean, occasionally, occasionally like, well, I mean, the computers like a pro inside in size as well. And like, it might be just like a convenient to keep it as a data frame, depending how you encode the data. I mean, it's, it might be possible that actually some simple approach might work. Now, I mean, that might not be the most realistic approach, um, the, the most realistic example in a sense that maybe it makes sense to shard the data and, and do it over multiple boxes. But another like a classical example is that let's say your data set doesn't grow. I mean, let's say you are handling all the all the countries in the world or all the zip codes in the US. Well, I mean, the number of zip codes, I mean, doesn't increase. I mean, like if you can handle the zip codes in a single machine or whatever processing you need to do, I mean, that's not going to change. I mean, it doesn't need to scale. <laughs> so I guess the kind of a lesson learned here and like going back to the question that why, why did I enjoy writing about it is that because there's so many trade-offs involved in like making things more scalable and more performant. And like oftentimes, like really, I mean, this is the, the, the oldest thing ever in, in computer science that you shouldn't optimize prematurely. And, and still oftentimes I see that, especially when people obsess about what I'm called production machine learning, that there, there is the temptation to even like, uh, like optimize too early. And the, the biggest price that you end up paying by doing that is that then it makes uh, iterations harder and it makes harder to onboard new people. It, I mean, let's say, you hire this amazing, uh, like a PhD who has a PhD in math or like maybe in astrophysics, and they would be perfectly capable of building a, an amazing new model. But I mean, now they look at your highly optimized C++ code and they can't like really, like uh, really understand it a bit or, or like kind of, it's very hard. I mean, let's say you have a distributed system and like they can't like reproduce these things locally. They don't know how to operate this distributed system. And now suddenly, I mean, this person is totally incapable of helping anything. So now you kind of have, a technically performant or scalable model, but actually like it would be much better for the company to have a, a model that is not so performant, not so scalable, but I mean that more people are actually like able to improve and the end result would be better. So, and of course it's all about trade-offs. There isn't a single right answer, but again, I mean, like what I enjoyed writing in the in the kind of the two scalability chapters in the book is, is really kind of to focus on those trade-offs and like show that, look, you can take a gradual approach. I mean, start simple and like only increase complexity. And there are actually really totally amazing libraries available off the shelf today that you can use to kind of start simple and then like a step-by-step make things more performant, more scalable as needed. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Man, you just gave me flashbacks with that example about uh, scalability. A couple months ago, working with a customer who had done almost the exact same thing, they optimized the algorithm. They took uh, matrix factorization. They, They rewrote it and tweaked it a little bit with some of the, the operations that were being done in order to customize for their business. And it, it was working brilliantly on their test data set that they were using, which was 5% of their users. And it was only about 20% of the items that they were trying to, like the, the products that they were recommending. And it was working great on an instant size, a uh, single, single node VM on AWS actually. And then they spent three months working on that and we're saying, okay, we're we're ready to start QA processes. We're going to push this to prod. Let's run it on the full data set. And of course, 
the VM ooms and crashes almost instantly. Right. So they they start talking to us. We were already in there with the data engineering team. Like, hey, we can do a recommendation engine on on Spark. You know, it's kind of a famous one that won the Netflix prize back in the day, right. uh, ALS. And uh, they're like, no, no, we can't use that because it doesn't solve this one problem. But it did, as long as you did post-processing heuristics on top of the output results. And mm -hmm. it got a little clever with that. But you could still use alternately squares, matrix factorization in a distributed system. But they actually tried for a month of trying to take their algorithm and distributing it. And they, they contacted us and saying, hey, we'd like to engage in professional services for you to take our algorithm and write a distributed version of it. And we're like, yeah, that's that's going to take nine months probably and a yeah. lot of research about how this this equation yeah. works. So yeah, the early optimization, I think that's a great point. And it's a common theme in a lot of companies doing ML when you get the clever people straight out of research groups that want to make a name for themselves, that have written papers, that want to now do it for real in the real world. Sometimes you don't want to do that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's great. Great discussion. Yeah, yeah. I do have yeah, a, yeah. a yeah, go for it. Yeah. A quick question on uh, maybe that one's for both Vidya and Ben. Looking at kind of a, a meta uh, framework for people just starting out in ML, how priority, how how a priority should it be to start, you know, integrating this kind of framework in their workflow? You know, just for you know, Kaggle competitions or just day to day, you know, smaller projects. It's probably beneficial at some point to be able to to integrate into a, a framework like that. But how how much of a an early look should people be taking at how how much of a benefit do they have from from looking at that early in in the the learning process? Because because how yeah, that could pay dividends later on on bigger projects. Or does it is it a good practice to just start out and say, okay, I'm gonna run all my projects through this. I'll get comfortable and I can uh, scale up and out eventually when, when things get bigger. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, my, like first, I mean, I guess the, the answer is that like you don't have to. And I, I think it's it's very important. And like, I mean, let's say you are very early like in your career. And well, I mean, there are so many things you want to learn and like only only so much time. So totally fine that you can focus on, let's say, I mean, if you, if you want to focus on initially just learning basic data science, machine learning, modeling techniques, I mean, just open a notebook and like follow tutorials that you can find. And like, yeah, no need to worry about anything else maybe in the beginning. Now, I mean, it's I would like to say that it's, it's kind of a comparable to the question that, okay, so let's say you are a software engineer, and, an engineer or like you are like learning software engineering. So at which point should you start using Git? Now, you can certainly hack a lot and like you can do all kinds of things without using any version control. And like, well, I mean, like if you are a disciplined or well-organized person, I mean, you can you can actually like kind of do everything gets really far like without using it. Now, I mean, like if you join any company and you want to do it for a living, I don't think that, like you can much get the job as a software engineer if you don't know anything about version control and like you refuse to use any version control. So, so in that sense, I mean, I, even if you think that like you don't need it, I mean, well, I mean, maybe in the employment point of view, it might be might be useful. And then of course, I mean, it, it kind of a, maybe teaches certain kind of a habits and like habits that are actually like productive and useful, although you may not see the benefits at first. And of course, do what Ben was mentioning earlier as well that, that of course like the companies different companies have have different need and, and they're like kind of a like not everybody is, is, is of course netflix not everybody's google and, and and there is certainly a kind of a graduation path that's kind of the way i see it you can you can start simple i mean totally like i start with the notebook first 
then start like let's say instead of just doing a notebook i mean what's what's fun is that like you can just write this simple python file i mean like maybe you organize your thing your like project as a, as a dag as a workflow then you can execute it as a workflow then it's actually like pretty fun i mean even personally that like you can like scale out to the cloud so easily actually like i personally find that it's much more rewarding even to do personal projects when you have a little bit more horsepower available and so so that's that's fun and and like definitely there are things that like you don't have to worry about like kind of like for for a long time and even small companies i mean definitely the idea and like what i'm also like trying to advocate in the book is that the idea is not that there's like a, only one single way of, of of doing machine learning or data science infrastructure and everybody must do it the same way and everybody must be like netflix or something like that i mean no no way at all so I mean, you can you can definitely focus on the problems that are most pressing for you. There are some basics that you probably like should be thinking, just for like the kind of a hygiene point of view. And then the idea is that like hopefully that the framework, the approach, like the grows as your needs needs grow. So, so I, I think I, I think that that's that's a pretty healthy healthy way of approaching it. Yeah, and to follow on what Fide said, one thing that I do when I teach people who are trying to get into data science, and I do a lot of this mentoring internally at Databricks and in the community at large, is to prep people for using frameworks like Metaflow or any of the other ones that might be more applicable to a company that they're going to work at, is get really familiar with pipeline orchestration within ML frameworks. So if you're using Scikit-learn or you're using Spark, like doing stuff in PySpark, any of the those libraries, they all have the concept of pipelines. Those pipelines, when you're writing the code, you might not realize what it is, but it's a DAG. It's it's a directed acyclic graph of operations that you're performing in sequence. And you can wrap that up as a single artifact to store somewhere. And that preps you for exactly what you had just said, which is, hey, when we go to production for real and we're building, say we're doing it in Python, you know, we're building a an egg or a wheel file that we're going to deploy. And this is a proper repository with good code architecture and abstraction in there. And we're writing classes and everything is, is sort of production hardened. Everything is unit tested, integration tests. When you're getting ready to go to that understanding and having familiarity with the pipeline concept, it's not a new thing that you have to learn. It's like, oh, this is just like sklearn pipelines or it's just like Spark ML pipelines, like, but it's just a different abstraction layer. So I think that really helps. Now, the demos and examples that you see online are all imperative, almost exclusively, because that's a better teaching tool for people getting used to it. But that is not how production ML is written. Right. So I wanted to jump in on a couple of things. One is, is you've answered most of the questions, I think, as far as like infrastructure and thinking about infrastructure and kind of planning for it. With Metaflow, one thing that I'm wondering about is just like, how do I get started? Like, what do I have to know in order to start setting it up? It sounds like it takes a lot of the pain away as far as figuring out what the next right tool is in a lot of cases, right? And and just kind of gives me the, the workflow and the, okay, you're probably going to need a piece here. Here's one that we recommend kind of thing. But how do I get started? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, by, by far, I mean, the easiest way to get started is to, like you just take your laptop, you write pip install Metaflow, then you can next like write Metaflow tutorials, mm-hmm. and and there are there's a set of tutorials that like walk you through um, the basic, like the basic concepts uh, like what Ben Ben mentioned about workflows. I mean, it's just kind of these like a like ways of thinking about things, and uh, and then like also how you use notebooks with Metaflow stuff like that. Now the interesting thing is that most of the power of the framework comes from the the kind of the the fact that like you are able to use the cloud. 
so easily to scale things out and like even even deploy to to kind of a production and then and then like if you're curious i mean like you can definitely there's a cloud formation template you go to the aws mm -hmm. ui you just like put the template there and click a button and it deploys everything for you and then you can actually start really actually like it's it's amazing and and this is this is something that like should be emphasized that like Although like we have been talking and maybe kind of a, you, you, the listeners might get the impression that, yeah, I mean, there are like so many different things. It's kind of a complex business. But the fact is that it's it's amazing to be able to leverage the, the clouds and, and they really like it kind of feels that you are really definitely like a standing on the shoulders of, of something that's quite giant. So if you I mean, like I, I've been doing this for a long time and like. If I like remember like what it was to do anything like this, like even like back in like 2007, 2010, before let's say AWS was really available in, in the current form, it would have been absolutely impossible like for, for even mid-sized companies to do anything like what we are talking about here today. And even Netflix, I mean, they have spent huge amount of resources over time uh, like, like working like early on with AWS before AWS had all these abstractions, let's say, and of course the same applies to other clouds as well. So, so in that sense, it's it mind-boggling that how much even a single individual can do today uh, by leveraging these these almost like a public utilities that are available, and also how surprisingly cost-effective it can be. So, so we are really talking about like really serious scale. Uh, like a Netflix scale, Google scale uh, infrastructure, and like not only scale, but also like the high availability. I mean, the fact that let's say Metaflow integrates with something like Amazon Step Functions, which is a kind of a workflow service provided by AWS. And you can like throw any number of workflows there and uh, and they just keep it running. And there's some, I mean, I'm sure that there's some Amazon engineer somewhere like with the pager, like kind of waking up at night if the system <laughs> goes down, but it's not you. Yeah. And that's that's the key part. So 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 I mean you can you can just click a button and like you don't even have to do much worry that something is happening. And there's someone else who makes sure that if there's a data center burning, they will like automatically fail over to the next availability zone and so forth. And, and that is that is honestly a small miracle. So so thank you, AWS, for that. Of course, I mean all this applies to Google Compute and Azure as well. So so in that sense, yes, I mean, like you can start easily locally, PP install, Metaflow also, but I mean like I mean, I, I want to emphasize like how easy it is also to take the next step and like go to the cloud and actually like start really benefiting from something that's really, really powerful. Yeah, there's thorough tutorials on like if you go to docs.metaflow.org, it will walk you through with videos and step-by-step -step guides of how to get started on this, but also not just the hello world example. It'll run through like, hey, what does it look like developing on this? Uh, so there's guides there. It will walk you through everything. It's pretty slick. Good job. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and buy his book, and you'll find out more about yeah, how yeah. all of that yeah, is built. Yeah. And then, by the way, I mean, like, it's it's a first, like, nowhere near perfect. And I think, like, like, thank you, Ben, like, for for doing also like so much work in in educating people, like helping new people to enter the field and 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 teaching these concepts. I, I think, of course, that's the kind of a big underlying theme here is that. Look, if we assume that almost every single company, at least who does anything digitally, I mean, like, will maybe not want to develop custom ML applications, but will at least leverage some ML and data science applications. We need so many people doing this stuff over the next 10 years time. I mean, I'm really excited about like seeing all the all the kind of different people from different backgrounds innovating, like coming up with different ideas and that. I think it's sad if if it's really the tooling and the systems that are the bottleneck for human creativity. 
creativity and uh, and then the fact that like our companies could become so much more efficient like if only they could like deploy deploy these things and uh, again i mean the thing i i think the big macro trend that's happening that we are not only talking about kind of the crown jewel like really visible applications like netflix recommendations or or like whatever google search or or so forth but i mean like the the tiniest little things so for instance at netflix somebody built a a predictive progress bar so they had this thing, they had the web application and that web application, like somebody uploaded something and it took a while to process whatever they had uploaded. And uh, and then like there was a simple progress bar that like just basically was wrong, like almost all the time. <laughs> and they had a simple linear regression model that actually like given what they had uh, uploaded, the user, I mean, just take a couple of features and like you can actually have a really good prediction that how long it's going to take. And then you adjust the progress bar accordingly. And now suddenly like you have actually an ML powered progress bar that like actually improves the quality of life of people who are using this application because they get accurate estimates that okay can they go for a lunch or can they take a bio break or like kind of is it going to happen immediately and it's 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 small things like that everywhere and that's going to happen over over like the next 10-15 years but it requires that like we need more people doing this stuff like we need better tooling and of course like deploying these things in production i mean it needs to be manageable because oftentimes it's a complexity that like kills everything so so i mean that's why i mean it's it's i think I'm I'm definitely on the on the mission of like trying to trying to kind of get get more more people doing this stuff and like lowering the threshold and yes I mean hopefully the book will help with that hopefully the tutorials will improve over time and uh, of course like working on the framework as well. All right. Well, I think I think you've answered all of my questions. And, you know, I like the approach in the sense that and this is something that I've run across in a lot of other projects that I've worked on is that the infrastructure a lot of times is the stuff that you have to do to do the stuff that you want to do. Right. And so by understanding how it goes together and then having a framework like Metaflow, I can pretty easily go from this is the stuff I want to do. So I'm going to do the stuff I have to do to, OK, a lot of this stuff, I've kind of got the big picture and the, the pieces that go into it. And so I don't have to spend as much time doing that. And I can get to the stuff that that actually matters. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely the. The pretext that yeah. I don't think that like any of these frameworks, the intention is that they will do your job for you. And I, I think right. that that's also like when engineers think about build versus buy and going back to the question we discussed earlier that, okay, so so many companies or like engineers have, have tended mm -hmm. to kind of trying to reinvent the wheel. Well, really the idea is that like there will be many, many wheels to be invented. So you don't have to reinvent yeah. anything because focus on the invention. And, and also don't handicap yourself by not taking something that that's already available. I mean, like, of course, you want to give, get the biggest head start that you can possibly get and like implement mm -hmm. the basic infrastructure and then like focus on helping your company or like kind of doing whatever excites you on, on, on top of this baseline. And at the end of the day, I mean, we are talking about the baseline. This is not the end goal. I mean, it's not that when you deploy Metaflow, when you deploy any of these frameworks that suddenly I mean, your, your work is done. I mean, view it more as, as a starting point. And then, then that's actually where the fun begins. So. Yeah, it's automating away all the stuff that a data scientist, they might be excited to do the first time, but they never want to do again <laughs> after they learn how to do it. <laughs> it I mean, it, yeah. these frameworks, these tooling for infrastructure and, and for helping you actually run your, your stuff, they're, they're saving you a bunch of time so that you can actually solve problems for a company rather than solve the technical challenges with deploying things. So they're, I, I personally think they're invaluable. And if you're trying to just roll your own and build it from scratch, uh, you're 
you're taking up valuable time that you're not figuring stuff out and being, you know, coming up with creative solutions to the problems that your business is having. I mean, most of us join companies as data scientists to solve problems, not to learn how to build infrastructure. Yeah. Yep. And by the way, I mean, like if you if you take a look at the, at my book, the idea there is that I'm definitely like a very engineering minded, always has been like all hacker engineer. And uh, I, of course, also want to know how, how things like work under the hood. So it's also not like trying to underestimate your capabilities as an engineer, let's say, or like as an engineering minded data scientist. So by by all means, actually, it is useful that like you have like some good level of understanding how these systems work. So, I mean, definitely I, I would encourage you to kind of a kind of a peek under the hood and like then get the confidence that like even when something fails, you have an idea what what happens. But I mean, then like, yeah, I mean, like maybe maybe you don't have to still like implement everything from scratch. So, and then that's with the book as well that I, I, I didn't only want to tell that, okay, here's this API, call this API and out comes a model. But I mean, so that, okay, here are the building blocks, here are these systems work. Okay, I mean, like now, I mean, a good example is something like this, like a large scale compute. Okay, so it's a good idea to know roughly like how this, let's say, container management systems work and like what are the, the moving parts in the world. But I mean, then like once you have an idea, then you can use whatever is available off the shelf. You don't have to do it by yourself or, or something like a Spark. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, having a basic idea how Spark works, definitely a good idea. I mean, and you can even like peek under the hood if you dare. But I mean, then of course, I mean, like maybe, maybe you don't have to spend too much time on, on like kind of a, Trying to trying to kind of reimplement the whole thing from scratch, but understanding how your your infrastructure framework works allows you to extend it, which exactly. that's really super critical. If you're like, well, the tool doesn't do what I really need it to do, but having that guide to say, oh, that's how Fiele implemented that in this yeah. tooling. I'm going to go check out the source code. I'm going to see how he built this other similar thing. I'm going to try to replicate that to solve my problem. And that's what I think is so valuable about not only the docs that are part of this, but having that book as a guide as well as saying, okay, I now know this enough to not create dangerous, you know, extensions mm -hmm. of it, right. but actually successful extensions that'll actually yeah. work in production. Yeah. Awesome. You've answered all of my, my curiosities so far. I mean, I could talk to you for like another eight hours straight. Yeah. Now, but, place, uh, but yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. I mean, this has been great. And uh, yeah, also, by the way, any of you listeners, I mean, are interested in learning more, like if, if you have any questions that didn't get answered, so you can definitely find me online. Uh, we have a Slack channel. You can find me on LinkedIn, whatever, like Twitter is even so, I mean, whatever works for you. So, I mean, don't hesitate to ping me and ask questions and like just get in touch. Awesome. How do people find you online? Good question. Uh, well, I mean, probably if you just Google my name, I mean, you will find LinkedIn. You can just like ping me there or or like you can probably find Twitter as well. It's my VTUULOS uh, on Twitter. So that works as well. VLATOUTERBOUNDS.CO is the email. So yeah. Any, any if you just type VLA and then if you type ME, he will be like the first thing that fills the, the top 20 pages of Google results. There's a, actually like there's a, there's another rock star like from Finland. So that's also like VLA. So and uh, he, strangely enough, he has the same uh, second name as well. So you might confuse me with <laughs> a rock star, but if you look at the photos, I think the, the difference is obvious. As long as Meta's in the query, it'll it'll yeah. show up. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, 
get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Uh, Francois, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, sure. Uh, another, once again, just a little tool. I don't do uh, flowcharts that often, although sometimes, you know, once in a while, I'll need to, to draw a flowchart for a client. Clouds pointing to squares and all that good stuff. And... I don't know. I'm just generally annoyed that it never puts the arrow in the right spot where I have two arrows pointing to the same thing and then they overlap and it's unreadable. And I was just using a lucid chart. And so far it's been the one that, that works as, as closely as what I want. It does what I want it to do as far as, you know, having a nice clean diagrams and arrows bending and, and going the way I want. So just a bit of a tip of a hat to Lucid chart. They have a, you know, it's a, it's an online service, so you can can collaborate and all that stuff. It's kind of like Google Draw in some ways, but it it just seems to work. The and that's what I need because I don't do that many charts, and I just want them to be done with. So that's my pick for the week. Awesome. Your yeah. pick is uh, <laughs> is how I spend ten percent of my life in that that program. <laughs> all of our architecture <laughs> diagrams at DataRicks that we share with clients are all done in Lucid chart. Yeah, it's a it's an awesome tool. If you need to build some really complex stuff, it makes it pretty trivial to do it. Yeah, that's a good pick. Awesome. I kind of stumbled on it, like being mad at a certain project. Like, I need a new tool for this. I'm like, oh, this this actually works, finally. So glad to hear it's it, it's uh, battle-tested. Oh, definitely. My pick, it's it's sort of self-serving. My apologies. But it's a the feature store that just got released from Databricks. And I don't normally talk about my company's tech on stuff that much, but... The integration that was built between Delta and MLflow and allowing you to serialize all of the operations required to create universal access across an entire company to pre-calculated sort of static features that can be used in multiple models. Uh, definitely check it out if you're curious, if you're struggling with, with like, hey, I only want to define my features one time and we have 80 different potential you know, models usages uh, for it throughout the organization. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I've been having to dive pretty deep into it because I'm finishing up the last chapter of the book. And uh, it's going to be pretty heavily featured in that. That's my pick. Awesome. By the way, Lucid Chart is a local company. Their headquarters is in Utah. I'm going to pick a fictional book. And then I'm also going to pick something that's not really... You can go to the hardware store and get this stuff, I guess. So the first pick, I've been listening to this book on Audible. It's rather long, and I'm really, really enjoying it. And it just, it, it's made me think about a lot of different things. And I think it's fairly applicable to some of the stuff we're going through now. It's uh, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. I just, yeah, I picked it up. I've heard a bunch of people talk about it over the years and just never read it. I was like, all right, you know, let's let's see what this is about. And yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So I'm going to pick Atlas Shrugged. And then the other pick I have, so I went and helped one of my neighbors move. Her husband had passed away. She was moving up to be closer to her kids. And anyway, she had some desks that she was getting rid of. And so I 
the she's like just put them on the street and put a free sign on them and i'm like no guys just put them in my truck <laughs> you know i'll I'll drive them around the block to my house. I have a bunch of monitor arms though, and it really didn't have a lip that I could connect them to so that it would hold everything up. So I went down to the Home Depot. I got some uh, eight inch C-clamps and two by six. And I cut the two by six in half because there were two desks and uh, just clamped the two by six to the desk. And now I have an inch and a half thick, uh, probably three inches worth, three or four inches worth of uh, wood that I can clamp all my monitor arms too and it's working really well and so i just kind of jerry-rigged myself a, a lip that i could put all of my monitor arms and other things that i clipped to the desk on it and so yeah if you're if you're looking for something like that and the only trick i really had to play was so the desk is open on both sides so i just had to get the c-clamps that were deep enough to go all the way down to underneath that the open side of the desk on the other side because none of the monitor arms i mean they, they they clear like two maybe three inches right to clip onto something depending on what i had so anyway good stuff there and then i guess the last pick that i have and this was sort of related to what we talked about today but on adventures in devops we did an episode about bioinformatics in devops and our guest i think her name was julian she or jillian i i can't remember anyway she she kind of has this methodology for setting up data science and AI flow for bioinformatics labs so that they can feed all their data in and stuff like that, right? And then she just adapts depending on what their data flow is and what algorithms are using, right? To help them to get it dockerized and deployed and all that stuff. And so that was really interesting. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Vila, do you have some picks for us? Good question. Good question. I Let's see. I mean, I, I actually like recently, recently moved to San Francisco. Like I have this new house, I guess. Well, I mean, like what I, what I learned, at least like being in this part of the city is that like having a big jacket is a good idea. Like it's so foggy in July. So, and uh, let's see like what else is, is a good one. Yeah. No, I mean like there are, there are like so many, so many tools actually like, let me like uh, mention one. So what's this service? There's the, um, it's called like a open weather API or something that I actually like recently mm -hmm. used to get weather data. I, I and like actually just to develop some uh, tutorials for for Metaflow as well. So it's like really nice slick service that um, I mean just like kind of I mean it's amazing that like how I was expecting that like getting like real time weather data would be like something really simple. But I mean apparently like there are many many different providers and like that one seemed to work really well. So it's a kind of fun experience. How granular does the localization go? Uh, good question. I mean, it takes a uh, latitude and longitude. So I don't know. I mean, like, okay. I mean, what, what's yeah. funny, funny thing is that like, I actually like tried to see if I can forecast weather for San Francisco. It seems to be possible. I, mean, I, I pick Las Vegas instead. I mean, much easier. There's to, like, I guess like a too, too windy, too unpredictable here. Right. Nice. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks for coming. This was really, really interesting. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. Well, uh, till next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.